0: Romans 3, and our passage will be verses 1 through 8, beginning uh, chapter 3 this morning. This is uh, the word of the Lord from Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? That good may come. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, now as we turn our attention to your word Revealed to us here in Romans 3, we pray for your spirit to come and help us. Father, that you would give us insight and understanding into the gospel of Jesus Christ and what uh, you are saying to us through your word this morning. Lord, we also pray for our children as they hear your word taught downstairs. Open their hearts. Help them to see that you are the king who rules over all things, and that you love them and have sent your Savior, uh, your, your Son, to save them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. But one of the most uh, recognizable elements of Paul's letter to the Romans is his use of questions to further his argument and answer objections to his argument. And we'll get pretty familiar with his use of Of questions as we make our way through the first half of Romans but here at the beginning of chapter 3 the questions begin Paul was using a style of, of rhetoric that was very commonly used in the first century known as the diatribe in our day when you hear someone talk about a diatribe it's often understood as being an abusive verbal attack on someone or on some group, but in Paul's day, it was simply a common way of making your case and was used very often in teaching. In our text this morning, Paul is mainly using the questions that he's asking here to answer possible objections from the Jews to the gospel message. More directly, they are objections to what Paul wrote in chapter 2, which we were in a couple of months ago. So let's remember, the Apostle Paul was born and raised a Jew. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, he says, he was a Pharisee. So some of these objections may have been the same ones that Paul had against the gospel before the Lord Jesus confronted him. On his way to Damascus. The man who is questioning Paul the Apostle's argument here may just be Paul the Pharisee, or more properly, Saul uh, the Pharisee. So let's re- remind ourselves of what the Paul the Apostle was saying then, right before this, in verses 25 through 29, at the end of chapter 2. Here, Paul uh, was challenging. Uh, the way the Jews relied on their identity as Jews and their knowledge of the law for their righteousness, for them to have a right standing before God. In other words, for their salvation. They're looking to their own identity, who they are, and their knowledge of the law. And he compares the Jews with Gentiles or those who are not Jews, and and here's what he says about it. Verse 25 of chapter 2. For circumcision, that is, the uh, uh, way that Jews identify themselves as Jews, given to them by God, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he goes into his first question. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? So in these verses, it would seem to the religious Jew that Paul has placed both Jews and Gentiles on equal footing before God as guilty. Therefore, Jews are just like the Gentiles in being under the wrath of God for their sin. So then Jews would be wondering, well then, Paul, what advantage is there? in being one of God's chosen people. They'd be wondering whether being Jewish meant anything at all. That is a challenge that Paul is addressing in these verses in chapter 3, as well as a couple of other questions that, that challenge Paul's teaching on the gospel, that for all people, Jew or Gentile, salvation is by God's grace alone. This is his gospel. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works. It's not even by the privilege of being a direct descendant of Jacob. Through these verses, then, Paul is seeking to help the members of the church in Rome, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, to know how to respond to these challenges and also to have their faith and hope in God strengthened. So here then is Paul's answer to the challenge What advantage has the Jew? His answer is the main theme of these verses in chapter 3. The Jews are tremendously privileged, as are all who possess the word of our always faithful and righteous God. The Jews are tremendously privileged, as are all, who possess the word of our always faithful and righteous God. So God's character is a main focus of what we're seeing this morning in these verses. Uh, Remember from back in the very opening verse of Romans, that's chapter 1, verse 1, Paul tells us there that he was called to be an apostle, that is, he was called to be a representative, a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was set apart for, it says, the gospel of God. This is God's gospel that he is proclaiming in 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 these pages. It's not Paul's gospel. It's God's gospel. So if there is any challenge to the truthfulness or to the faithfulness of this gospel, you would be calling God's character into question. And we're seeing that happen quite frequently in, in our American culture today. Whenever the secular media or politicians or educators or even our friends and family cast doubt on the reliability of what the Bible says about how this world came to be, or about how man and woman were created, or about marriage, or about the only way that we could be saved from God's judgment, they're ultimately calling God's character into question when they do that. So let's get into this passage here Then, by way of three headings. The first heading, um, verses 1 and 2, as Paul responds to the initial question here, Having the word of God is a tremendous privilege. That's our first section. Second would be verses 3 and 4. As Paul then begins to defend God's character, God is and will always remain faithful. And then uh, verses 5 through 8, God is and will always remain righteous. So we have an always faithful, always righteous God, and it is a tremendous privilege to be given his word so first again having the word of God is a tremendous privilege verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God so here's Paul the the former Pharisee and zealous persecutor of the early church arguing for why Jews cannot look to the law or to their own identity as God's special people or to their participation in the special ceremonies that God had commanded them to do in order to be kept from God's judgment. Because of their own sinful disobedience and failure to keep God's law, they are under the wrath of God just like Gentiles. So then they would ask, Is there any advantage then to being a Jew? Paul answers, Yes, much in every way. There are a great number of advantages. The sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have enjoyed tremendous privileges, they have most certainly been blessed. Paul wants to make that clear. And, and he does here, as well as in Romans chapter 9, where Paul lists off some of those blessings. He writes there in Romans 9, 4 and 5, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So much of that list in Romans 9, 4, and 5 refers back to the remarkable history that the Jews have had with the Lord. He chose their father Abraham. He made a covenant with him and with his offspring. The Lord had promised to bless him and his descendants and that through one of his descendants, that is through one particular Jewish man, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That promise was, of course, referring to Jesus, the son of Mary, the Christ, the Messiah, who himself said, salvation is from the Jews. So then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision or identifying yourself as a member of God's covenant people? Much in every way. Then Paul highlights the primary benefit for the Jews. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The main privilege of all the privileges that the sons and daughters of Abraham enjoyed was that they were given God's word. They had what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. They had his law, they had his promises, they had his very words, which revealed to them the glory of God and what it means to know and to belong long. To God. Paul is reiterating what God's word had already declared in Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 7. There we read, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is, is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? As the great hymn writer uh, William uh, Cooper wrote in uh, reflecting on this great advantage that the Jews have, he he wrote this, They and they only, amongst all mankind, receive the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with his own engraven laws, and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth, the Savior of us all. However, although they had this incredible advantage, this wonderful privilege of having the oracles of God, it did not inevitably result in all the Jews being saved from God's judgment. Paul will argue in Romans that you need more than just simply having or hearing God's word. You must believe it. You must trust his promises with all of your heart. One pastor said it this way, Scripture is God's preeminent gift, for it reveals God's mind, will, and plan. It also reveals his miracles, laws, and wisdom. Yet to benefit subjectively, we must hear it, and believe. So yes, being a Jew had a great advantage. However, it did not have an absolute advantage. It had abundant benefits, but not an ultimate saving benefit before God. And if the Jews were greatly privileged for having the Old Testament scriptures, then people like us uh, have enjoyed an even greater benefit. Than they did, for we have not only had the same divine words that the Jews had in Paul's day, but we have also been given God's words through the apostles in the in the New Testament, which reveal the mystery of the gospel more fully. We know just who the Savior is, and who was the promised, uh, who, or who was promised in the law and the prophets. We we know the way of salvation. We have the written record and the fulfillment of those promises uh, from the Old Covenant. And just like for the Jews, just, just having and knowing the words does not directly result in our having salvation. It's not enough just to own a copy of God's word, which probably most of us do in this, wor- in, in this room. Well, God's word must be read. It's not just enough to, to read his words, but his words must be heard. It's not just enough to hear his words. They must be loved. They must be believed. My friends, we are immensely privileged to have the complete word of God. But in order to take full advantage of this great privilege, we must trust and treasure these words. We have them. But in the end, will we be found to have believed them. Secondly, God is and will always remain faithful to his word. Verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does Does this faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So here the the, the question or the challenge comes to Paul, acknowledging the reality that not all the Jews believe the promises of God. God had promised to bless them, but, but some were unfaithful. Does that then nullify the faithfulness of God? If God promised to bless and be with his people, and yet so many throughout their history turned away from the Lord and worshipped idols, well, doesn't that call into question the reliability then of God's promises? Since the history of the Jews is a history fraught with unfaithfulness, does that then mean that something is lacking in God's faithfulness to them? So here's where we find some of the challenges to Paul's teaching, uh, that we're calling into question the very character of And Paul responds in the most emphatic way he can, by no means, he says. This challenge required more than just a simple no. That's not what I'm saying. No, it was so serious that it needed an absolutely not, or not on your life. He then goes on to make a famous statement, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What Paul's stating here is that when God's people fail to be faithful to God's commands or fail to live out God's word as God has called them to live, the problem lies with man's inability, not God's reliability. Uh, Again, anyone who who knew their Bibles, like so many of the Jews of Paul's day, would realize why this challenge is so strongly opposed by Paul. You know, what, since, since God's people were unfaithful, would that call into question God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. The faithlessness of men will never cancel out the faithfulness of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, th- this morning prior to the service, uh, a group of us um, were, were in this room studying uh, the book of Kings from the Old Testament and one of the main themes of that book uh, within the oracles of God, as, as Paul refers to him here, uh, that the Jews knew and had, is the trustworthiness, the reliability, the faithfulness of the word of the Lord, and therefore the faithfulness of the Lord. He is faithful to what he has declared in his word. He does what he says he will do. Over and over again, as we've studied the book of Kings, we've read, you know, such and such happened according to the word of the Lord. Or the word, uh, the, 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 the word of the Lord declares something through one of the prophets to one of the kings. If you do this, then this is what's going to happen, and the king does it, and the word of the Lord is proved true once again in Israel's history. So even the judgment that came upon the northern kingdom for their faithlessness, for their refusal to keep the covenant, as well as the eventual judgment of God that he brought upon the southern kingdom, Judah, through Babylon for their failure to keep the covenant that God made with them, well, was the problem with God's covenant, with his word, or with the people called to obey and follow God's covenant? It's clearly shown the problem is always with us. God faithfully kept his covenant. He warned them of the judgment that would come if they rejected him. And even though he mercifully held off his judgment... You know, giving them time to repent, sending them prophets, calling them to repent. The judgment eventually fell on them just as he promised it would. God is and will always remain faithful to his word. Paul also quotes here from, from, from Psalm 51 uh, in verse 4 of Romans 3. And it's interesting, this verse he's quoting from Psalm 51 is also verse 4 back in Psalm 51. So this line comes from David, the author of Psalm 51, as he confesses the sin that tainted his reign as king, that is his adultery with Bathsheba, and then the resulting murder of her husband Uriah. David was uh, the Lord's anointed king, the man after God's own heart, and he failed miserably in keeping God's law. And in, in Psalm 51, David is not pointing at God for his faithlessness and not being able to keep him from falling. Rather, what David does in that psalm provides a model um, for the Jews and for all of us on what to do when we are confronted with our sin, when we are made aware of how we have sinned against the Lord and failed him. David took ownership of it. He took responsibility for it. He said to the Lord in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that, here's our verse from Romans 3, you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That is so that you may be proved that you are right, that you are just. So whenever a new... new testament author like paul quotes from the old testament scriptures they assume that their readers will know what surrounds the verse or the line that they are quoting and thus apply those words to their point as well so paul's intention is for his readers to recognize that we are to respond to our inability to be faithful to god's word like david the problem of our faithlessness lies with us we have sinned we have turned away We have rejected him. It does not lie with God. God is faithful. He's always faithful. We are the ones who are faithless. In fact, the very gospel that Paul will be teaching in this letter reveals the faithfulness of God in all of his covenant promises to Israel. He proved his faithfulness to his word and his people by sending them the Messiah that he promised he would send. Jesus Christ came to them, to the Jews. He appeared before them. They heard his teaching. He he called them to follow him. But as Matthew records Jesus saying to Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Israel's Savior had come. God had, has kept every one of his covenant promises. He is and always will be faithful. When it comes down to it, the question is will we trust him? Will we believe his promises? Will we receive and put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior? My friend, have you confessed your sin to the Lord like David? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from God's judgment to come? Are you running to him so that he can gather you up under his wings and protect you from the wrath of God to come? Thirdly, God is and always will remain righteous. This is the last section here, verses 5 through 8. God is and will always remain righteous. So. Verses 5 through 8, Paul brings up a few other questions that some Jews may have been using, or at least questions that Paul the Pharisee would have had, uh, would, would have used to challenge the teaching of the gospel. Uh, these questions have to do with the righteousness of God in judging sinful Jews. Look at verse 5 again through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Or why not say, do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So as Paul revealed back in in chapter 1, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, the gospel teaches that God will be shown to be righteous in and through condemning sin in sinful man. Therefore, sinners like you and me, both Jews and Gentiles, must have their sins forgiven and be given another's righteousness in order to be saved from God's condemnation. Uh, the, questions, or the questioners here then, in verses 5 through 8, they were claiming, well then, if our sin reveals God's righteousness in some way, as you're saying, Paul, why are we still condemned for sinning? Since, since by it, God is shown to be righteous. Why not do what is wrong if, if good ends up coming out of it? Doesn't the end justify the means? So I hope, I hope you, you can see the absurdity of these questions already, right? Frequently, the challenges that, that opponents of the gospel uh, give to us, they really are absurd. Paul is showing that that to us here. The argument of Paul's challengers is, is to make it seem unjust for God to punish sinners. Well, if there ever was a bit of twisted human logic surely this was it i mean this would be similar to arguing okay if setting fire to my neighbor's house provides our firefighters the opportunity to show off their skills that they can put out this fire or at least to practice their their skills that's a good thing too right why not set it on fire if some good comes out of my sinning why not sin well, as Paul vehemently states once again here in verse 6, by no means, that is absolutely not. Sin is a horror to God's holiness. Sin is destructive, it is deadly, it is abhorrent to God. There is no good in sinning. And God is always righteous to condemn sin and judge sinners. He needs no help from us to display his righteousness. God is righteous with or without our sin and and having to judge sinners. Paul is showing that this whole argument is absurd. That is why he states at the end that anyone who would think in such a way deserves to be condemned for they are blaspheming God by calling his character into question in this way. So beware of people Trying to justify their own sin or the sin of others by making the excuse that good will result. Today is, is sanctity of life Sunday. And I hope we all realize that we still, within, we still live within a society that has, for the most part, lived by the lie that has said, it is better to end unwanted pregnancies than to require the mothers and fathers to have to take responsibility for them, for these children. So the argument goes, now, abortion isn't a good thing, but there is good that comes out of it. That is, the good of the freedom it provides the mother and the father to pursue their dreams and their plans in life without having to be held back or burdened with a the child they weren't planning on and don't desire. Therefore, the end of freedom, the good end of freedom for the mom and dad justifies the means of ending the life of their son or daughter in the womb. Well, God's Word tells us here, absolutely not. God forbid, by no means. That's, that's not at all the way that we should think about that. Abortion ends the life of the smallest, most vulnerable human beings who are all made in the image of God. It is a blasphemous, violent attack on the image of God. It is is murder, which the Lord God condemns. And those who promote the legalization of people killing their unborn children use the same kind of illogical argument as those who are questioning Paul Here in our passage, they are seeking to justify sin and call into question the righteousness of God for condemning them for that sin. But Paul Paul here has already told us what is really going on with them back in chapter 1. If you want to look at chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So let's also be aware that we do a similar thing within our own hearts we use similar arguments to justify our own sin. We point to the supposed good that will come if we, if we lie or if we cheat or, or steal or, or just don't speak up when we know we should or, or cross over the boundary that the Lord has set for our romantic relationships in his word. When our consciences are stricken, our sinful hearts We'll work overtime to make a case to justify ourselves. And it sure doesn't take much to convince ourselves that, yeah, we're, we're right. We're right to do that. It's not that big a deal. It's actually a good thing. That is unless we compare our arguments with the word of God. For when we open up the Bible and actually take seriously what God's Word says about our sin, about our own sinful hearts, about our condition, we come face to face with the always faithful, always righteous, all holy God. And by God's grace, we will realize the tremendous privilege of having the oracles of God. For they show us our true condition And they reveal to us the way of salvation. If we would but listen and believe what they say and then respond by humbling ourselves before God in faith and repentance, acknowledging that he is true and we are wrong, that he is righteous and we are guilty, and then by the glorious grace of the gospel, God will forgive us of our sins And consider us as righteous in his sight through what Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, accomplished in his sinful or his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. So, dear friends, look away from yourself and put all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation.